Um, have you ever seen someone who just doesn't seem to have their style quite right? It's, it's like they decided they really wanted to wear a shirt um, and they put it on and then they realized, uh-oh, I forgot to move the laundry over from the washer to the dryer so I don't have any pants to go with this. I'll just put on whatever's comfortable, like maybe their swim trunks. And then uh, they step outside and find out it's kind of cold, so they run back in for some cold weather shoes and realize uh, that their dog chewed up the last pair they had. So they went ahead and threw on what they did have, some nice tall socks and some sandals. Have you ever seen someone like that whose style is just way off? It's horrible, isn't it? It's ridiculous. It looks terrible, and yet that person boldly walks out into public as if it's totally normal. As if it's totally normal for them to be wearing something that is so not right. But why? Why does it not work? Well, simply it's because the clothes just clash. It looks wrong. And even though we feel this way about the style or lack thereof that we see in some other people, uh, they still seem to show up into the scope of our vision with this it'll do kind of attitude. That is my least favorite attitude. And yet it's the one that I find myself falling into over and over and over again, that it'll do mentality. It's the idea that I just have to do what I must to get something to work. If something's broken, I'll fix it to the point that it'll do what I need it to do. I don't have to go any further than that. As long as it does what I want it to, it'll do. It's the idea that I just have to do the bare minimum to reach the desired goal. And as long as I do All that I need to, as much as I need to in order to get what I want, it'll do. It's the idea that duct tape fixes everything, right? The idea that as you're flying, as long as the wing doesn't fall off the plane from the duct tape, until after you land, it'll do, right? I've said it often about the Midwestern states that we live in, but we definitely live in the it'll do part of the world. And some of you uh, more than others understand what I'm talking about because you've watched your husband fix the leaky dishwasher with a piece of bubblicious gum, a paper clip, and a cut-up old credit card. You've seen this happen, and we praise this as some sort of genius MacGyver kind of move, right? It's an incredible feat for them to solve a problem with these household items until they fail, Right? It's these it'll do fixes that seem to get the job done, but it only lasts for a certain amount of time. We, we need to realize that when those things are exposed, when those things fail, they tend to cause more of a problem than there was at first, don't they? It's suddenly now we're way too far behind on what we needed to fix, and, and we have a lot of catching up or a lot of money to pay to catch up in order to get there. So now we come to the moment, the moment where the gum is not keeping the leak in anymore, the moment where the duct tape is no longer holding the car window shut. Some of you know that. You've been there. The moment when we have to realize just how it'll do we've become with our faith. The book of Revelations has been an intriguing and confusing and terrifying and thought-provoking and question-generating section of the Bible for me my entire life. And it's always caused me to do kind of a spiritual double take, kind of like I did this morning when I looked in the mirror and realized I can totally pull this off. 
So today, I want to invite you to look into the mirror of Scripture with me as we examine together our own faith. We're going to look at Revelations chapter 2 and 3, and this has been a very important section of Revelations for me in the last 10 years of church ministry, because this is the section where John, the Apostle John, receives seven letters to seven churches that come from Jesus. And these, this is Jesus himself giving a clear picture of areas where these churches are succeeding and areas where they have failed and then gives actions for them to do in order to step out of this it'll do mentality and back into what they were originally called to as followers of Christ. And so as we dive in, I ask you first to hear the plea of Jesus that comes at the end of each of these letters. He says it over and over and over again. And here's what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to listen today. Not because I'm talking. We need to listen because what we're going to read is straight words from Jesus. And we need to hear what he has to say. If you have ears, listen. Listen and hear because you might be surprised what you hear. And then we have to look a little beyond that. And we see in James 1.22... Uh, verse through 25, it says this, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So not only today am I asking you to listen, but I'm asking you to have a heart that's ready to act. When we hear what Jesus says, we need to be ready to respond to it. If he calls us to some sort of action, some sort of change, we need to do what it says. Otherwise, we're being foolish. We got to put aside our desire to just show up at church and check that out of the, on, on the list there of saying, well, I did that. I went to church this week. Today, I'm asking you to go beyond that and to realize that as we look at this, there's some structure to these letters. Jesus points out areas where he is pleased and areas where he's not pleased, areas to praise and areas with problems that they need to address. And as we look at these, I want you to realize that these are not all problems that are written out to just the church in whole. But in fact, throughout all of this, you will see things that point directly to the individual and how the individual needs to act. It's way too common and easy for us to blame the whole body for things that the individual has caused and needs to correct. And so today I'm going to ask you to be ready to listen and respond, because if we as individuals will do some introspection, some looking into our own hearts and decide how we're doing in these areas— and we start to change, then the church as a whole will begin to change as well. But if the individual denies this and blames it on the body as a whole, we will never see these things corrected. So I'm asking you to really allow your heart to hear this. We're going to dive into the scripture with that mindset, ready to receive what Jesus calls us to. And we're going to break these down into two sections. I'm going to call them the commendations and the reproofs. Okay. And instead of reading two straight chapters that talk about them, we're going to actually be looking at the specific verses in each letter. First, we'll look through the commendation verses, then we'll talk through those. And then we're going to go back and look through the reproof verses and talk through those. So the easiest way for you to probably follow along, it'll be up on the screen. 
If you don't want to tilt your head up and look up there if your neck's kind of sore, you can pull out your phone and actually, it sounds funny to pull out your phone, but if you open up the Bible app and hit the more tab in the bottom corner and then tap events, there'll be an event titled Mitchell Berean Church. And it's actually the entire service from this weekend where you can take notes along in it, have all of the scripture specifically with it and the points that are in there as well. And so that's an easy way to follow along. But if you don't want to use either of those and you have your Bible with you, if you just open up to Revelations chapter two, I'll walk you through the verses that we're going to be reading. It'll be easy to follow along. But since we are not reading the entire thing, I want to encourage you to do something this week. After we talk about it today, I would ask that you go back and read through the whole thing. Read through the pieces and parts that we didn't go over because it's not that they're not important. That's not why we're not covering them. They're extraordinarily important for us to understand. And the book of Revelation scares us away a lot. But if you take 15 minutes this week to sit down and read these seven letters, there's some incredible truths in there for you that it it would be amazing for you to see, plus an incredible review of going back through and remembering what these things were. So I would encourage you to do that. But we're going to start with the commendation verses, Revelations chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It says, I know all the things that you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Jump to verse 9. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Jump to verse 13. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Verse 19. I know all the things that you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Chapter 3, verse 2. We're going to read just the first part of this verse. It says, wake up, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. And then verse eight of Revelations three, I know all the things you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. So we're going to break down these verses to understand what is the good? What are the commendations clearly that Jesus was pointing out? And the first one that we see is this idea of patient endurance in the midst of all things. Patient endurance. Five of the churches received a commendation for this from Jesus on how they were willing to be faithful no matter the circumstances that came up against them. And this sounds really good, and in fact, it is. This is an incredible thing. But when we think today of the successful church, we often think of the amount of reach that they have, don't we? We think of the number of people that show up in attendance. We think of uh, maybe the number of views that their pastor is getting on a video he posts on social media. Or maybe we think of the number of visitors who are just dying to come and check it out, right? Those are the kind of things we think of when we think of successful ministry today. Because that's what we see as success. It's easily measurable stuff. But if you noticed in this, in the commendations, Jesus didn't mention attendance numbers even once. He doesn't even bring it up at all. 
but he does mention faithfulness often. See, we need to realize that God is not looking for the same successes that we are, but he desires faithful hearts, no matter the approval or disapproval of the surrounding culture. James 1.12 says this, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterwards, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. God is calling us no matter the circumstances, no matter what we face, no matter the testing, no matter the temptation to remain faithful, whether there's a thousand people in your church or no one to remain faithful to what he has called. That's what he's looking for. And that is what he's commending these churches for, that it did not matter how the world saw them, whether they were successful or not, they were faithful to him. The second commendation that we find is this refusal of false teaching. Only the church in Ephesus actually receives praise for this. They were holding firm to the word of God and made sure to test the teachings that they were receiving before they would accept them. They would hold these things up against what the apostles had written and taught. And if they did not match, then they would get those things out. If they found something that was false, they would deny it and they would remove it from their midst. If they found a teacher who was teaching false things, they would remove that teacher from that position and not allow them to teach anymore because they saw truth as extraordinarily important. This is way more important today than you may realize because we live in a time that we have an ever-growing amount of accessible information And it's so easy for us to jump on and grab something from it, but we don't realize all the time that it's not all true, that not everything on there is true. And our issue really comes in when we allow our emotional feelings, our response and emotion to dictate whether or not something is truth, to to carry more weight in our decision of truth than what we allow the word of God to do. We like a speaker for how inspiring they are. But we never really take the time to go back and check in Scripture to see, are they speaking truth? Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 about this, encouraging him to remain faithful to teaching the word of God because times were coming that it was going to be harder and harder to do that. He says this, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Paul was talking about a time that was coming. And and I'll tell you what, I read that description and I go, man, it kind of sounds like a time that's here, doesn't it? A time where people are not looking for sound teaching. They're not looking for truth. They're looking for someone to appease what they feel. They're looking for someone to agree with them. They're looking for someone to affirm what they want truth to be. That's our culture, isn't it? And so we go around and we look for people who will affirm what I already believe to be true in myself, no matter what truth actually is. And here's the real issue, is we have no shortage of people in positions like pastors who, who are not afraid to go ahead and compromise truth in order to gain popularity, and they will speak whatever they know will gain them that approval. You see, we have to be very careful who we're listening to in this world that's so easy to find a ton of sources. We have to be careful. We have to check back. Just because someone's a good speaker does not mean that what they're speaking is good. 
We have to go back to truth and quit just accepting things because you'll see as we get into this later the kind of damage that it causes when we allow false doctrines into our belief system. Third, the reproof we see coming next is to the church in Thyatira. They were commended for their willingness to suffer for the sake of others. This style of ministry is really hard, and yet this church stuck with it. That is a commendable thing. They were dying to themselves and doing what it took to reach out to the people around them, no matter what the cost. This is a commendation that many of us want, but not very many of us want to earn. And so we've come up with a really great, tricky, sneaky, wonderful way of being able to gain this kind of commendation without actually having to do the work. In the church, we have created a culture where we come in and we complain. And we find someone who who will listen to us and we keep telling them over and over and over of the trials and tribulations that we've had to go through. And yet we still are remaining faithful to God. And we do this again and again and again until someone affirms in us what we already feel, which is, wow, it's amazing that you are still faithful after all that you've been through. You are an incredible saint, right? That's the culture we've created in the church, is a culture that's seeking commendation for sacrificial ministry without actually having to do it. Pointing out sacrifices that are all about self, not sacrifices that are about others. And that's how we live, but we have to understand it's never enough. The moment I get one person to agree and say, wow, you really do deserve commendation from God for your incredible faith. That feels good for a while. And then I got to find someone else to tell me the same thing, right? So I keep going. And then some of us jump into this idea of, well, now I need to embellish my life a little bit and make it sound a little bit worse than what it really was so that I can get the reaction I want. We're feeding off of something that is not going to satisfy, but that is not what we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ. He called us in Luke 9, 23, if we want to be his true followers, he says this, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. Turn from your selfish ways means it cannot be seeking something for me. The moment I'm seeking something for me, I'm following me. I'm not following Christ. And so I have to realize that a sacrificial ministry is, is something that does not benefit me directly or in the moment that I do it. It's not about then. It's not about my benefit or my reward. And that's what this church was commended for. They were willing to give themselves up for the people around them without seeking any kind of reward, any kind of commendation. The fourth commendation we also see goes to the church in Thyatira. They receive a commendation for their increasing works based in faithfulness, love, and patience. The word that we need to really notice here is the word increasing. These people were not just doing the same old thing. They were constantly striving to grow in their ministry to the people around them. And their driving forces of love, patience, and faithfulness were commendable motivators. These were incredible things. And this is something that we should be striving for regularly in our own faith for the sake of others and for the sake of our own faith. If you look with me in Second Peter 1, 5 through 9, I want you to hear what it says. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. 
Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. The last verse that I just read should be an answer for some of you. You keep finding yourself filled with guilt and shame over past sins. It keeps coming back and with it comes a lot of doubts about your faith. Over and over again, you keep finding yourself wondering, am I actually saved? Does God actually love me? Could God actually reach me? Did God actually forgive that one sin? You see, why this happens is because we're not moving. When faith is stagnant or still, it's no longer faith. It becomes a breeding ground for the lies of the enemy to come in and cause us to doubt. When we are not growing in our faith, we are allowing for footholds to be built for Satan to step in and and bring us to a place where we feel like we have no faith at all. We have to realize there's an importance in increasing in these areas of our faith regularly and constantly, not deciding that I've made it and so I can just sit. We have to realize that because if we don't, we will find ourselves constantly bouncing back and forth between feeling faithful and being filled with doubt over and over and over again. And it's time for us to realize that we must grow The last commendation we see is this. It says, a few faithful people remained. This doesn't really sound like a great commendation, does it? If you you were describing a church that you wanted to invite someone to, and they're like, well, tell me about it. Well, a few faithful people are still there. Kind (laughs) of doesn't sound like that great of a place, does it? And yet, Jesus commends them for this. He doesn't talk about attendance numbers. He does notice those who are faithful when others are not. And again, I remind, I want to remind you this, the sway of the culture, even the popular church culture is not often in the direction of faithfulness. Instead, it is more often in the direction of supplementing, supplementing our faith with other things in order to strengthen it, adding kind of feel good pills in order to help us be faithful. But we need to realize something. Faithfulness that has to be rewarded is not faithfulness to God. It's faithfulness to a reward. I have a really good dog at home. His name's Jake. I've had him since he was eight weeks old, and, and he's really smart. And I can teach him all of these tricks, and he will do these tricks for me. But when I hold a treat in my hand, he really does those tricks. He's really good about it. Now, is he being faithful to me in the commands that I've given him, or is he being faithful to that treat? Well, it's to the treat. That's what he wants. We are always faithful to what we want, what we think we will get out of something. And so we come to church and feel like, okay, I've got to find something that will make me feel like I want to be here, that'll really warm my heart, that'll really help me when I walk out, just, just be able to remember just how awesome God is and how awesome he thinks I am. And when I don't get that, I decide, well, maybe I shouldn't go back there because I'm faithful to the reward. I'm faithful to that feel good. I'm not faithful to God. 
I'm not faithful to his word. I'm not looking for truth. I'm looking for someone to give me what I feel like I need in that moment, not what I actually need. We gotta stop being spiritual dogs and waiting for a treat in order to do the things that we're called to. So now we get to the fun part of the mirror. This is the part where we look past the good, past the commendations, and we start looking at the bad and the ugly stuff. Last week, Pastor Giles said that we need to focus on the progress and not on the problem. And I agree 100% with him. And you have to understand the context of what he was talking about was when we are being patient with others, we have to realize that we like to do something different with this saying, though. We like to look at ourselves and say, oh, but look at the progress. Look at the progress. Now, we need to realize that there is a process going on of sanctification, being made holy as we walk in our faith, but, and we're not supposed to focus on the process, but see the progress that's there. And actually, I'm asking you today to do something different, to look not just at the progress, but to look at where you're supposed to be, the final product, to look at what it is that we're supposed to be going to. Don't just focus on, look where I was, look where I am, I'm doing great. Because when we focus there, we stop moving. We feel like, well, I've done something good. Now I can sit for a while. Stop looking right where you're at. Start looking at where you should be. And if you're looking saying, well, we don't really have a standard, do we? The standard is Jesus. And that standard is really far away from a lot of us. And we've got a lot of work to do to hit that standard. And so I want you to focus, to hear what he says in this and be willing to have a heart like David When he wrote in Psalms 139, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I love this heart because it's the idea of, okay, God, write me a letter. Tell me the commendations and reproofs. Give me actions that I need to change, that I need to work on, that I need to grow in. Wake my faith up to you, God. Make me aware of these areas. And I'm asking you to have that heart. Today, as we go through these, have a heart that's willing to hear from God. What is it that I have been at fault in? What is it that I need to work on and correct? So we're going to look at the reproof scripture starting back in Revelations chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 4. It says this, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Then jump to verse 14. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Jump to verse 20. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Jump over to chapter three, verse one. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things that you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. 
And then verse 15. I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So the first reproof that we see is to the church in Ephesus. Remember, this is the church that was faithful in persecution and that held strong to the word of God. They were growing in their devotion to truth, but they had lost their first love. They had forgotten their first love. This group showed incredible faith and endurance in their ministry. They were working hard and had a great community outreach. They would have seen growth in many areas and would have been the kind of church that would have had a great programming offered for your entire family. This would have been a good community church, but the problem was they had forgotten the reason why they should be doing this. They were no longer doing this because of their love for Christ. They began as a church pursuing the heart of God, but became a church pursuing the successful models of the world. I want you to think about your own heart for a minute. When you first put your faith in Jesus, there was a desire to love and and pursue him in the way that you had seen him pursue you. There was this first love, and I want to ask you something. Is that still there? Is that first love still there? Are you still driven by it? Because if not, it is time to turn back, to come back to the first love, to stop doing just the popular things and to start focusing on the real things that Jesus has called you to in order to come back to what it is that you have forgotten, to stop being motivated by false things, but to come back to the one thing that is an everlasting motivation of work. We cannot just live on our works. We need to have a love for Christ or we're quickly gonna lose the motivation to do any of the work of the ministry and we'll walk away from it. The second reproof is sent to the churches in Pergamos and Thyatira. These churches were allowing false teaching. They were being influenced by two different groups. One was an individual and the other was a group called the Nicolaitans. They were leading these people into sin and and the churches were compromising with the Roman religion of the day in order to be accepted by the surrounding culture. For these churches, the idea of taking a pinch of incense, putting it on the altar to Caesar and affirming their uh, devotion to Caesar as God was, was a worthy compromise in order to keep their position in the community. That's what they were doing. They were willing to publicly stand up and say, oh yeah, Caesar, Caesar is Lord. That's great. Can I keep my job? I can still be a Christian. I, th- I just don't have to do it publicly. Publicly, I need, to, I need to go along with the flow, go with what's going on or else I'm gonna have to face tough things and hard things. And that's what these churches were doing. They were putting on the religions around them and the things of the culture in order to fit in. They didn't see following Jesus as worth the risk. As one of them did, though, uh, there was a man named Antipas in the city of Pergamum who denied Caesar as Lord and held to his faith, and he was put to death for it. He remained faithful even unto that point. And so these people were terrified. They compromised to save themselves from persecution. And so where do we see that today? I want you to think about the culture that surrounds us. We live in a culture that is constantly growing more and more hostile towards Christianity, a culture that disagrees with many of the values that the church is supposed to hold strong to, 
a culture that demands the right to create our own truth. And, and when they do that, it causes actual truth to become obsolete. We in the U.S. are really guilty of letting the influence of culture control our faith. We're, we're allowing the words of celebrities and politicians to carry more weight in our hearts than the word of God. And we need to wake up to this because we're compromising our faith on a daily basis in order to not offend somebody with something they might disagree with. We hide our beliefs and we trade them for approval in order for us to feel good. We allow weak and false doctrine into our hearts because it sounds like it would be easier to follow and easier for my friend to accept. We say things like, well, that may be true for you, but God is different for me. And we think it's okay to say those kind of things, to feel those kind of things. We put incense on the altars of the gods of our culture in order to keep the peace and keep ourselves comfortable. And this has to stop. We're not called to be the church of popular opinion or the church of what makes me comfortable. When we live that way, we look like this. It's ridiculous. Putting on the things of the culture and trying to fit into it when you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you looks wrong because it is. It clashes. They don't go together. We have to stop trying to fit in in this way. It doesn't work. It's not what we're called to. We got to stop looking ridiculous because we're starting to destroy our witness because we're pursuing comfort and acceptance instead of pursuing comfort in Christ. The third reproof that we see is to the church in Sardis. They had a great reputation in their community, but there was a problem. The church was dead. This was a church that at some point had allowed false teaching and weak doctrine to water down their faith. And instead of being a church that was moving and reaching, they were a church that was simply going through the motions and traditions that they always had. This is the church uh, that I like to say is the church of the frozen chosen. These are the people who have decided that they have served enough to earn their right to sit. I've done enough. I can sit here and it's someone else's turn. It's the the attitude we see today of people going, hey, I went through nursery and served in there while my kids were going through that. But now it's some other parent's turn. It's the attitude of, you know what? I've given enough offering to this church over the years. I've given a lot and they need to be grateful for that and quit asking me to help with special projects. It's the attitude of, well, don't we have pastors and their wives who can mentor people? Why are they asking us for help? Isn't that their job? Aren't we paying them to do that? I have a job and I have to do it without help and I'm not complaining about it. It's the attitude of, well, of course they need more people to serve in their ministries. I just wish these millennials would wake up to how selfish they're being and serve like we did when we were their age. You see, it's an attitude and and list of reasons that we could make go on and on and on. It's endless. We will always be able to come up with reasons why we've earned a right to sit because here is the problem. We've decided that there is an honor that we can gain or earn or deserve in the church, that there's some sort of thing that we can earn or gain a position in order to exclude us, to retire from what we're called to. We need to stop pursuing these temporary honors, though, and start looking at the eternal rewards of faithful service to Christ. The church is not to be a monument to the glory days, but a living, active picture of Jesus Christ in the world that desperately needs to see something different than its own values, than its own standards and practices. Now we get to the final reproof. This is to the church in Laodicea. This is a one that you may be really familiar with. This was the lukewarm church. 
They were the epitome of what all the other reproofed churches were heading for. They had fallen into the lie that their worldly success was actually God's blessing, and therefore they were rich spiritually in their eyes. But Jesus uses this description of this church. They're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, this was a similar description Jesus had used to talk to the Jewish people of Nazareth when he came back and taught in the synagogue in his hometown. He read from the book of Isaiah, and you can see this story in Luke chapter 4, but he reads verses that point out something extraordinarily similar in a description. These people believed they were spiritually rich because of their outward appearance, but they were actually poor. And I want you to think, have you been tricked by your outward appearance? Do you, do you see yourself in the mirror and go, man, I make this look good. We need to wake up. We in the United States have become so lukewarm, and yet we are convinced that there is no one else in the world who is as spiritually driven as we are, who is as pursuing of God as we are. Nobody else comes close to us when it comes to holiness. We've got this Christian thing down, and yet we are so lukewarm. We've made following Jesus into a status instead of a devoted calling. And because of this, we're now in danger of being completely useless in reaching our lost world. We've said it'll do so often to false and weak things that now we don't even know what truth is. And when we're faced with it, we think it's too harsh. Or we look at it and say, "Uh, I'm just going to ignore that. Or we deny it. Or we flat out say, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, it doesn't fit anymore. That's, it's outdated. That was written 2,000 years ago. It doesn't fit with our culture today. We live in a new culture. At some point, I would encourage you to go through and not just do a study of the word of God, but do a study of the culture surrounding the word of God. Take a look at what the cultures were going through at the times that these things were written, because you might be amazed at how similar the problems were that they had to what we have now. These, in fact, were not cultures behind us, but cultures ahead of us when it comes to where our sin is taking us. This is the picture of what we're heading towards, and we need to wake up to it. So I would encourage you, before you say, well, it's outdated, realize that it's actually ahead of you still. That there's still stuff that that we aren't at yet, but we are on our way to. Right now, we have it extraordinarily easy to be Christians in the United States. It is very simple, and it's part of why we've become so lukewarm. We have to realize that these were people who were facing death for being Christians. Not long after this was written, you have the Romans come through and try to exterminate Christianity over and over again killing people by the hundreds and thousands for sport just to get rid of it. It is crazy to me that we have become so stagnant in our faith when it's easy for us to live it out. We have a culture that, yes, may not accept it directly, immediately, but also isn't going to persecute us in the same way that you see these people going through. I don't know about you, but I'm really tired of this in my own life, this, this feeling that I don't need anything. This is the true issue of the lukewarm believer. They're convinced that they're rich enough in what they have that they don't need Jesus anymore. And maybe it's not that they don't need Jesus at all. They just don't need as much of him. We have to realize if that is where our heart is, we, we've missed it. We again have thought, oh, I've reached some sort of place where I can sit. I've 
Look at my progress, and I'm amazed at my own skill level, my own understanding, and so I'm going to stand still for a while. When that happens, we see a warning come in from Jesus in Revelations 3.20 that we often put towards evangelism, but it actually, in its context, is written to the believer that has become stagnant. And it says this, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus desires to commune with us, but our attitude of Christian achievement has put him outside. And we no longer have a desire to abide in what we think we have already had enough of. So instead, we abide in self, or we abide in religious practices, or in checklist Christianity. We, we ignore the mirror altogether and believe wholeheartedly that we look good in the ridiculous outfit that we're wearing. Today, as we take communion together, I want to ask you something. I want to plead with you something, that you would stop and listen. That you would listen to hear, is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart? Have you put him outside? Is he trying and pleading with you to let him back in, to, to allow him to come in and call you out of your it'll do mentality and back into the revival of your original devotion to him? back into the first love that you once had. I want you to take this time to listen, to look in the mirror and repent of the areas where you have put on mismatched clothes in order to be accepted or to gain approval. I want you to repent of the areas that you've allowed false teaching to corrupt your devotion to the truth of God's word. Repent of the areas where you've allowed yourself, uh, your love of self to replace your love for God and, and repent of the areas where you have become dead and stagnant to repent and to return to the one who willingly gave himself up for you, the one who desperately loves and pursues you with an everlasting desire for your heart. You see, that's the first love he had for us, and we love him because he first loved us. And as we remember in communion today, as we remember what it is that he has done for us, as we remember the price he was willing to pay for us, I pray today that it wakes you up, that it causes you to realize just how it'll do you've become. Just how easy it is for us to, to just sit back and act like we don't need any more. We've had enough. To think that we've reached some kind of goal and we don't have anywhere else to grow. I beg of you today to listen. To take a moment before you take communion. To listen to God. And then as you remember his broken body and his blood poured out for us. Would you take that time to remember that he's called you to more than just doing what it takes to get by? And he desires more for you than that. As we take communion today, please listen. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and for the ways that you love us enough to give us these reproofs, that you give us these corrections. You call our hearts out, God. You cause us to awaken from what we thought was strong faith at times, what we were convinced by lies was, was okay, would get us by and help us, God. We, we want to move beyond that. We want to get back into a faith that is living and active, a faith that is moving, a faith that is growing. We want to put aside the doubts and the lies. We want to be moving forward with you, God, growing in our communion with you. God, help us to wake up to where we've become stagnant, where we have become still and dead. God, help us to wake up to the false beliefs that we have and, and bring those out of us, God. 
God, help us to wake up to areas where we are destroying the witness that we have by trying to fit into the world around us. Help us to realize our approval that we have in you through Jesus Christ. And God, if there is anyone in here who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, would you speak to their heart right now, God, and draw them to yourself? Would you tell them and remind them, God, that there is a Savior who has paid the price that they owed to you, that Jesus shed his blood so that they would not have to, and all they have to do is put their faith, the weight of their salvation in his hands, on his works, not on their own, realizing, God, it's not what we can do to succeed, but it's the fact that Jesus has already succeeded on our behalf. Help us to come back to that, to stand in that truth, to be moved by that, God, and to become a church that is faithfully driven, chasing after you and pursuing your heart. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. And God, help us as we remember to listen and to hear from you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. As you're ready, come and take communion. We also have it available in back. Only you, my rock and tower, 